welcome to the Student Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Rutherford from Learn, Grow, Become, where we work with universities and higher education providers to empower mature age and part-time students to gain the mindset, the strategies, and the confidence to succeed in their studies. Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. Today we have Christina Mora-Smolder joining us. Now, Christine is, sorry, Christina is an English language educator and she has more than 20 years experience, particularly focusing on literacy, academic writing, uh, English literature and English as a second or foreign language. She's qualified in language and linguistics and her teaching experiences include training and assessing teachers in Hong Kong, teaching English and literacy skills to migrants in Tasmania, and teaching academic writing, reading, and speaking to ESL university students in the United States. And I think today I need some <laughs> linguistic help as well. <laughs> but most significantly, she has developed and implemented curricula for English, ESL, and special needs students as the head of English at an international school in Malaysia. She's the author of a pronunciation book for teaching English as a second language. And she's worked for an advisor as an advisor for pronunciation and re, a reviewer for educational materials submitted for publication to Cambridge University Press. She has two children with dyslexia, which I believe has fueled her interest in this area. And looking forward to learning more about dyslexia as a topic today. Welcome, Chris. Hi. Thanks. <laughs> um, I think that uh, more than even fueled, I think just raised my awareness about it. And I yeah. think that actually is a big issue with this topic, um, even as an educator before, and even as a parent of um, two children with dyslexia, this, when, the, when the second son was showing signs of dyslexia, I still didn't realize that he had dyslexia because his signs were very different from my first son's. And I think that um, that's really contributing to the problem um, of of people with dyslexia, the problems that they face. Yeah. And so for those of us who are unfamiliar with the significance of the issue, um, I know from your research, dyslexia affects an estimated 5 to 15% of the population. It's a neurological condition which may impact a, student, a person's ability to read, write and or perform other basic tasks which are essential to learning. Can you share with us some of the challenges that these students experience when it comes to learning and their student experience in general? Uh, yeah, there's, so there are a number of different characteristics that a person can have. Um, the defining characteristic for dyslexia in particular, because a lot of these neurological um, conditions are overlapping. And so, you know, things like autism spectrum disorder and ADHD are often also associated with um, dyslexia. So a person may have uh, quite a range of characteristics. The defining characteristic for dyslexia is difficulty with phonological processing. Um, and that's usually associated with learning to read. The thing is, a person with dyslexia can and will learn how to read. And in fact, many students who come to university read. Um, they may not even be aware that they have dyslexia, but they still are affected by a number of issues. Um, it, take, it is more difficult for them to read. It takes them longer. It is a more laborious task, typically. Um, it's more difficult for them to write. Many students with dyslexia have difficulty with memorization. 
Um, and that can be because of overlaps with other issues like ADHD. It can also be because, you know, the nature of learning is very phonological. And so that impacts, um, you know, your ability to, to learn things. Um, so there's a very wide range of difficulties a person can have. It's not associated with intelligence, though. So a person, um, you know, may have a very high IQ or even an average IQ, but seem, uh, because learning is so inextricably bound to reading the way we do learning, and in particular distance learning, um, it does seem as if that person isn't very smart. And in fact, one of the biggest problems with um, dyslexia is that uh, the stigma um, whether you know you have dyslexia or not, and I would argue especially if you do not, you grow up being told and made to feel that you're stupid because you're going to school, you're spending six hours in a classroom where everything is reading and writing and performing in ways that you may not be comfortable with. And um, one of the outcomes of our study, wasn't surprising because it has been found over and over again, is uh, the very bad history students have had in school. And in fact, I think it takes great courage for someone with that kind of history to even attempt to come to university. Yeah, and I can I imagine- where I started with that. <laughs> the question. Well, yeah, no, and I think that's, that's it. They're, they're coming from um, a background of not having faith in their own abilities, of doubting themselves and not having confidence in their learning. They're starting with their learning journey at university and then experiencing probably similar and even um, different challenges. What kind of, you know, how would that play out for, and I know there's no average student, but how might that play out for a student? A lot of the students that I see, um, you know, they, they are coming at it with that lack of confidence. So they're afraid to seek help. Um, they, they may have difficulty um, with so many things, you know, with, um, so for example, Moodle is a written medium um, and forums are a written medium and contacting their lecturers um, through forums is actually nightmarish for them because um, as opposed to an email, which is one-on-one, -on -one, they have to sift through all of that information. And then when they try to get help from someone, which is rare, but when they do, they're often slapped on the wrist and told, go to the forums, that's where you're meant to be. And they're not finding that helpful. Um, most of their assessment is written. I would say 50 plus percent, and I would say plus um, is written. And so that's a struggle. Um, the amount of reading and you know, note taking all of those things are difficult for a student with dyslexia. Yeah, and I can imagine that, you know, as you're saying, they're actually stepping out brave enough to ask for help. And I know I've seen it. It's in the forum, go and ask. I'm not gonna answer it again for everyone. And I can understand from the lecturer's perspective, I've already explained it. I don't wanna explain it to everyone individually, but not thinking about are there different needs that this particular student has or do I need to present it in a different way so that other people can access it, not just um, your average student, I guess? Well, and really that is what um, I argue for. So 
the, the point of the research was to find how to support students with dyslexia. And for the most part, I'm not suggesting um, that we should be helping individual students. What I'm suggesting is universal design and best practice. I'm saying that when we design our curriculum, we should be designing it for everyone. I don't mean dumbing it down. Um, I mean things like presenting information in multiple formats. So presenting in videos that are, um, you know, with decent, um, uh, how can I put it, decent videos so that students can understand the information that are planned videos. I don't mean perfectly polished videos, but videos have been shown to be very important in my research. The students with dyslexia uh, really prefer videos for a number of reasons, one being that they can pause and go back and listen again, where students without dyslexia don't necessarily do that as much, but also because they prefer to receive information in an oral form. This won't just help students with dyslexia, this will help many students, you know. Um, some of the things I'm recommending for assessment and for designing Moodle pages, that's just best practice in my opinion, and we should be doing it anyway. Um, one of the findings in our study was that um, students with dyslexia take a very uh, long amount of time to complete tasks in comparison to other people. And this is something that they're willing to do and that they do do. Um, however, in some of their units, the amount of uh, work being required of them I think doesn't fit into that 12-hour recommendation uh, for what an average student should be able to do. Uh, and I think we need to be looking at that. And that's one of my recommendations. I'm sorry, I'm jumping all around. But um, oh, no, okay. one of the is let's make sure that our course content is delivering what we promised um, it delivered, which is 12 hours of study per week. Yeah, and, and maybe that also comes back to what is an average student these days, because it's not what it used to be. And maybe we haven't changed our mindset around well, we what need 12 to hours rethink. means. That's right. We, we need to rethink what a university education is. It isn't that brownstone elite thing anymore. Uh, more people need a university degree. We keep talking about widening participation and we want those students to come. We want to see them succeed. That means we have to change the way we think about education and university. It isn't just, well, this is how it's done. You need to be able to write an essay when you get to university. The fact is, a lot of our students haven't been in school for 15 years, and they may not have done well um, in school 15 years ago. The retention rate for students who are mature age, I believe it's something around 60%. It's, it's pretty low. Part-time students, it's pretty low, um, you know, relatively speaking. Those, we're, we're not that posh, you know, elite institution. And so one of the things I talk about is imagine, and again, I'm sorry I'm rambling here, but <laughs> imagine you're a student who hasn't been to school in 15 years and you're doing a full-time course load. You probably have three essays due within your first five weeks. And so that essay, the purpose of that essay is supposed to be to show your understanding of what you've learned in the unit. But you also have to learn how to use the lot. Well, you have to learn how to use Moodle, first of all, and all the expectations at university. You have to learn to use the library. You have to learn to reference. You have to get your head around a whole new genre of reading, new vocabulary, new kinds of um, academic English that you've never seen before. And then you have to learn to organize and process that in, in an essay form three times within the first five weeks. 
that's a massive challenge, just the essay alone, much less learning that course content and synthesizing it in that form. So one of the, some of the other recommendations to come out um, have to do with assessment and scaffolding those assessment tasks. If we feel that a graduate needs to be able to write an essay, we have to teach them how to write an essay. And we have to do it in a scaffolded manner. I don't think we should be hitting them with an essay within the first five weeks and, in, and not telling them how to do it. Um, so one of the biggest problems that these students have is coming to, they, they don't even know where to start, you know? Mm. Um, and the other issue is uh, variety in assessment or authenticity in assessment isn't something that I often talk about. But if it isn't authentic, if, if that student doesn't need to be able to write an essay in their uh, target profession, well, then why are we making all of our assessments essays? Why are 50% or greater in some units, some courses in, in university demanding essays? And I, I think it comes from that notion of what a university education is and what we had to do in order to get here. Um, and yeah. what our expectations are that a student should be able to do once they get here. Yeah, and I mean, even thinking, um, as you say, about, you know, how many career paths are there where an academic style essay would be needed as opposed to, say, an ability to write a report and to, you know, review outcomes and compare and contrast and those other things, which are really great learning experiences. And they could be things that could be assessed um, and actually have that relevance later on. Um, so it's interesting to think, you know, what are some of the, the different approaches that we can actually take thinking about who our students are, whether they have dyslexia, whether they have ADHD, whether they have, you know, whatever. Um, English is a second language. Yeah. You know, so many things. And, you know, that's that's what inclusivity is. It's it's not it's not continuing to do what we've always done and trying to support the people who don't who, who can't learn that way. It's thinking about our curriculum and is it suiting everyone you know is it the best possible curriculum we can design and I think if we sat down instead of just accepting that this is how things are and thought about it we'd actually improve our teaching as well um, we you know might come up with some solutions to including things like academic integrity I've seen some really innovative oral presentation sort of assessments, which address a whole range of concerns, I think. And I know um, in your uh, research findings, and just going back to what I've read, um, is that there was that importance of having that interaction, being able to interact with a lecturer. Or would, is there also that benefit of interacting with, say, other students, like whether that's peer mentors or other support networks, or predominantly just with the lecturer? No, it's with anyone, I think. And I, and I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things that inspired me to do this research is I'm an ALC advisor. And so um, I meet a lot of those students who are studying by distance and they need someone to, um, you know, just give them some feedback as to whether or not they're on the right track. And that, that is an issue that someone with dyslexia and other um, different disabilities will have is that sometimes they misinterpret or they grab a red herring or something and they waste so much time going in the wrong direction. Um, and they just, need, they just need a little bit of feedback as to how they're going and, and just a little push in the right direction, really. 
But yeah, to, to answer your question again, a student mentor is a wonderful thing, I think, for them. Um, they are very, um, they, they very much enjoy study groups and seek out study partners. Um, and they do crave that interaction with their lecturers just to make sure that they're on the right track when they can get it. Yeah, Distance I, education. I makes that. Yeah. Like even thinking about my own learning journey way back last century, um, the first time around, it's, you know, just having that reassurance that, yeah, you are on the right track, that you are understanding what you need to do. Because as much as we might have our exemplars and we've got our, you know, our little learning matrixes and everything else, it's not that clear because you're trying to, even when English is your primary language, you're still trying to translate academic speak into your own thinking patterns and then translate your own thinking patterns into academic speak. And so it is almost like another language and understanding whether you actually understood the language um, is just so important. It definitely is. Linguistically, it is. It's a. It's another. You know, dialect in the same of the same language, academic language versus any other dialect. Okay, so um, I guess it, I know we've sort of talked a bit about your recommendations in general. So, what about if we move beyond just that learning experience to that whole uh, entire student experience, whether that's from enrolment through to graduation? What kind of things do we need to rethink about so that we're actually ensuring the success for these students? I feel that at our university that's happening. There is a bit of a groundswell, um, you know, surveying students as they come in, um, trying increasingly to introduce them to those services early on so that they're very aware of them. And I think sometimes orientation just isn't enough because they're just getting too much information at once and a whole bunch of new things we don't even realize, like words like Moodle and Zoom and ALC and all of those terms that are new to them, they're meaningless at first. And I'm not just talking about students with dyslexia. So those kinds of things are really important. But I think, um, you know, once they're in a unit, as I said before, I, I, really, I really think that curriculum design is extremely important. And also the way we design our Moodle pages. And I think it needs to be not just within one unit, but within an entire course. I think there needs to be some consensus about how we're going to design our units so that students are using the same formatting styles and the same formatting requirements. They're finding their assessments, everything they need for an assessment in the same place. Things are predictable um, and readable and accessible. Um, I think that that is going to help students when they first come because that is um, a huge obstacle when they first get here, getting their head around all that. And then actually, you know, even within their second year, um, changes and differences really spins people out. Um, it would be much easier for them if things were more consistent. So that would improve the student experience from the start as well. The other thing that, um, and I may be off the question because I keep forgetting where we started, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, uh, so, oh, a whole bunch of things in my mind now. Um, Two-thirds of the students that are affected by this sort of thing are not identified. Mm -hmm. Research shows that a, two, a further two-thirds 
who do have an assessment and are eligible for support from inclusion do not register with services like inclusion and accessibility or disability services. So there's only a very small number that we are actually aware of and are supporting. One of the kinds of support that we give these students that can be very effective is assistive, assistive technology. Um, things like text reading software, grammar checking software, dictation software, things like that. Of the students in my study who were registered with inclusion and accessibility, only one was successfully using um, assistive technology. The others may have been offered, but they didn't get any training in it. And either that or they were already, um, by the time everything went through, they were already in the middle of their studies and unable really to go back and learn how to use that software. So hardly anyone's using that software. One of the things that I am also, um, that, that I would also recommend is that universities should have the software freely available to everyone. Just like at our university, we have the Microsoft suite available to everyone. I feel that this should be available to everyone rather than buying individual licenses, getting, um, uh, and by the way, this recommendation um, comes from Natalie Vontine, who works at our university. I don't take full credit for this. Um, she said, how wonderful would it be if we had um, university license then we wouldn't have the delay in getting the licenses for individual students who may have already had a delay in getting an assessment and getting registered and then getting that license. And then also provide training um, for that, for students who wish to undergo that training. This could make a world of difference for people with dyslexia and a whole range of other students as well. Mm, definitely, and particularly for those who, um, as you say, they're more auditory learners. Um, yes. They're not visual, they're all, you know, so there's all those other elements that we can bring in as well and, and other people that will benefit and being able to learn how those support services and support programs work before they're caught up in the middle of their assessments would just be critical. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And things like dictation software, they're also used by people with physical disabilities um, or even just injuries. You know, I can think of a staff member who asked, do we have access to dictation software because she had been in a bicycle accident and she could have used it. So it isn't just this five to 15% of the population that I'm talking about, it's probably a much greater number actually that could I benefit could, from it. I could really use it in the car on the way to work so I can record exactly. what I'm thinking rather than forgetting <laughs> it by the time I can write it down. <laughs> We need that flexibility too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's all the questions that I had for today. Chris, did you have anything else that you wanted to share? Where would we find your research? And I'll make sure I'll put links in. Oh, that's all right. Um, currently, uh, it's still in the balance. Um, the So the grant that I received in order to make the research, it the report hasn't been approved yet. So when that has been approved, it will be available. Um, for the time being, I'm not sure. I'll have to give you that information. Working on publishing, haven't done that yet. So, um, but if anyone has any questions, certainly they um, feel free to give them my contact information. Um, there was one other. Th oh, so I think um, the one other message that I would would send is um, 
we all make this mistake of assuming that a student is lazy and didn't put in the time. I, I also have, you know, I've looked at a references and thought references list and thought they couldn't possibly have looked at the guide. Don't make those assumptions. Um, some of those students are working very, very hard. And the extent of the problem is much bigger, I think, than a lot of people realize. You probably know someone with dyslexia. And with 5 to 15%, if you think back to your school years, the kids in the classroom who had trouble reading and who weren't doing well, and some of them may have been the class clown or, you know, a whole bunch of other labels you could put on them, some of those students were probably affected by dyslexia. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, um, we need to approach it that way when we don't know someone yet. Yeah, and I imagine that when we've got um, international students and that just becomes a more, you know, more complex then in terms of if we have international students who also have these challenges and we're expecting that um, the English is, written English is going to be easier for them than um, audible English. So how do we then manage that as well and actually support them in a better way. There are so many issues there as well. I mean, you know, a lot of those students, the, the, the way we think of academic writing in our culture is different to the way people in other cultures, particularly Asian cultures, look at academic writing. And um, that, that's a problem that we may not always understand. And you have a student coming from a foreign country they may have arrived the day before, not familiar with that writing, perhaps not familiar with the Australian accent at all, um, because that isn't mo the most common accent used abroad in order to teach English. It's actually quite a different accent to get your head around. The vowels are very different from those other two that you often hear. Yes. Um, and, um, and then all the other same issues, you know, a lot of them are school leavers. And I may be wrong in that. I'm not sure about that, actually. We do have a lot of graduate students as well who, who may have been away from study for a while. So many yeah. issues. Yeah. Culture shock. Um, so, yeah. Lots of things we can work on. Opportunities for improvement. Well, if we, if we just do our best to make everything as accessible as possible, to do our best job on our end, and to learn as much as we can about how to do that, um, I think we'll be doing everyone a great service. That sounds really great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christina. That's been really, really helpful and enlightening. And I'm sort of thinking about my experiences going, yeah, that would have been really good for me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Tanya. No worries. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And that's the end of this episode of the Student Experience Podcast. I hope you can join us next week for another great interview.